We are so back. China Talk coming to you the day before Thanksgiving with an emergency podcast in light of the um, seeming resolution of the standoff to um, to end all standoffs between Sam Altman, the uh, OpenAI employees, uh, and the board members of its nonprofit to discuss how this all ties back to U.S., China, and artificial intelligence. I have on with me Rohit Krishnan, a former investor currently working on something, as well as the writer of the fantastic substack, Strange Loop Cannon. Rohit, welcome to China Talk. I am super excited. Longtime fan and excited to jump into this. All right. So before we get into the substance, um, <laughs> why don't you give the sort of uninitiated a brief taste of what like everyone on the internet bore witness to over the past five days. So for those of you who are um, luckily enough stayed further away from Twitter than I did for the past few days, the world has kind of been insane. Um, and I do mean that sort of in the most literal sense, because I've been searching for uh, metaphors for what happened and I still don't have it. And the closest is perhaps, I don't know, Macbeth. Um, so here's the situation. OpenAI, one of the world's best, preeminent, most successful startups ever in the history of technology, um, created groundbreaking AI, went from zero to a billion and a half in uh, revenues, recurring revenues in under 12 months. Just an absolute juggernaut had um, internal issues where part of its board disagreed with the CEO. For vague reasons that are still unclear five days later, um, Sam Altman, the CEO and founder of OpenAI, was fired on Friday. After he was fired, the other co-founder, Greg Brockman, quit immediately afterwards, maybe an hour or two. They uh, immediately appointed their CTO, Mira, to come and become the CEO. She very quickly joined Sam to try and bring them back to the table because this is a power struggle that is essentially going to end up completely destroying the company, which at last valuation was close to $100 billion, and even then was meant to be undervalued. Over the next couple of days, they negotiated back and forth, presumably all sorts of details about who else should be on the board, who else should be actually running the company. They brought Emmett Shear, the previous founder and CEO of Twitch, to come and write the ship. Emmett went and asked, okay, I will help you do that, but what did Sam actually do? And again, no answer. It's been five days and nobody has actually said anything meaningful about what he did beyond the fact that he um, allusions to sort of things that he might have done. Um, finally, Sam said, okay, I'm going to go join Microsoft, who have put, I think, $12, $13 billion into OpenAI already and have kind of banked their entire company behind succeeding in the AI race and clearly seems to be doing so. Almost all 770 employees basically signed a document saying, hey, if the board doesn't resign, we're all going to quit and go to Microsoft, which is a pretty big cudgel, as you can imagine. Various shenanigans aside, now finally we seem to have a resolution where there is the beginning of what looks like status quo. Sam is back in the company. Greg is back in the company. Ilya, one of the defectors, the Brutus in the story, is back in the company after having repented. Um, the knife, in this case, not being as sharp. Everyone seems to be getting along well. They're back on mission. Uh, the new board comprises of Larry Summers, which is a left-field pick, but I think an interesting and important one. 
Um, it's it's set up in a way now with sort of just three members that presumably is going to lead them towards success with Sam back as CEO. It's been absolutely incredible to see this come round circle, go from zero to, um, I don't know, go from 100 billion to zero to something that nobody understands to everybody wanting to quit and go join Microsoft, which is, again, I should insist, a statement that nobody has said as a positive statement in probably like 25 years. Uh, and now things are back, I don't know, on track, roughly. It's absolutely insane. So, um, you know, the idea of a sort of like the, the sort of succession machinations, the, the, you know, Shakespearean drama of it all, um, I think is, you know, has been riveting to the entire planet over the past week. But um, there are some real issues of substance, I, which I think is the only way to kind of explain exactly why these developments happened, um, which we're going to sort of explore and maybe, you know, cosplay some of the um, debates that the um, the board was having with the OpenAI leadership over the, um, you know, over the past weeks and months. You know, maybe Rohit, actually, why don't you start with like what we know about what it is they were, um, they were and weren't um, arguing about um, over the future direction of OpenAI. So the weirdest part of this is that OpenAI does not have a traditional structure. It started its life as a nonprofit that is dedicated to a grandiose and grand goal of creating artificial general intelligence and which can help all of humanity. At some point, a couple of years after their founding, they basically ran out of funding because their initial funding was entirely coming from Elon Musk and a few others. And like that spigot got cut off for various reasons. Um, However, training something like GPT-3, 3.54, these are extremely expensive endeavors. You require billions of dollars and a lot of compute. The only way to do that was to go to private markets in some sense. Therefore, they created, through an extraordinarily Byzantine structure, they created a for-profit entity that sit, sat underneath the non-profit entity. So from the get-go, there's a little bit of... Um, problem with the way they kind of approach the world because the for-profit entity clearly has uh, promised its investors a maximum of 100x their investment as the return. So Microsoft put in $10 billion. They can get a maximum of a trillion out of this. Um, however, the nonprofit has as its part of its charter um, an extremely vague statement saying they're supposed to guide the development of this to benefit all of humanity. I mean, you or I or anyone can have their own best guess about what this actually means. Because benefit of all humanity is an extremely vague statement, as you would imagine, and people interpret it differently. So the choice of the members that they elected um, have, you know, everyone comes with their own particular points of view of what this might actually mean. Um, what we actually do know, over the past year, some of their existing board members like Reed Hoffman, et cetera, have left or slash been pushed out, A, because they've had other investments in the space and Sam and others presumably were not comfortable with them staying on the board. B, we do know that there was a tussle between um, their management, in this case, Sam, Rick, et cetera, as well as some of the other board members who are more um, you know, AI safety focused. AI safety here is a bit of a word, we can get into it, but like, it's a vague definition that encompasses everything from the fact that, oh God, these things can be used to create weapons to 
uh, oh God, you know, it's going to get sentient and actually kill everybody. And there's a vast spectrum of beliefs that sit underneath it. We also know that like Helen, one of the board members, wrote uh, a piece published that basically kind of said Anthropic, one of the competitors and also a spin-out from OpenAI, is much better at doing its job than OpenAI because they delayed releasing certain products. When you combine all of these things together, what you have is a fairly unhealthy board situation. However, it's still, even after all of these days and like uh, information coming out at such rapid pace, it gives no indication of any actual inciting event. In fact, what we do know is that there were multiple people, multiple times, including Emmett Shear, the interim CEO, Sam and Greg, none of the board members, including Ilya, um, and even Satya Nadella came out and said, like, we don't know what actually happened. There was no inciting incident. There is no reason why Sam should have had, um, uh, should have been fired in the sense that nobody actually knew why that happened. The board, I think in one of the New York Times articles, or, you know, was quoted as saying like, you know, Sam was so deft at manipulation that we have no evidence of the fact that he did any wrongdoing, which is an extraordinary statement to hear when you've just fired the CEO of a $100 billion valued company. So what we do know is a lot of illusions that are fired in all directions, zero evidence of wrongdoing, and the fact that this actually happened and got reversed in under five days with the board being fired. So before we get into this U.S.-China AI piece of this, um, I do think it's worth doing an yet another callback to the Jade Lung thesis, which we've discussed one or two times on the past, because I do think that this whole saga really illustrates um, just sort of, you know, how powerful uh, and, uh, you know, deterministic her ideas actually are, um, you know, looking at past case studies of emerging technologies and how they've and how those sort of power centers of who gets to define their development um, transition from uh, researchers to corporations and ultimately to government. So Rohit, um, what was your take on, on on that piece of scholarship and how it applies to the situation? Um, a, a long thesis, the shortest version of it is basically that um, the development of any strategic general purpose technology and AI in this case fits um, within that particular broad spectrum is um, Ha takes on a political pattern pretty quickly uh, between the things like there are these researchers who are interested in finding cool stuff. There are the organizations and the firms who actually try and take them and create whatever companies, industries out of it. And then there is a state, right? I mean, which is the United States, China, whoever the government actually might be. And the, their relationships are determined by the fact that, you know, they all have their respective goals. They have their own resources and constraints, et cetera, et cetera. And this creates a lot of different forms of conflict. So one outcome that she discusses is that, like, there will be significant economic and national security implications that, um, uh, that uh, come from the fact that these technologies are actually discussed uh, at the state level. And any, you know, when it's applied to AI, as we can learn from previous applications that of this have, that has happened in the world of aerospace technology or bio, et cetera, is the fact that once it takes on national security, uh, national defense interests or like security interests, then you will actually start getting caught up in the possibility of, you know, a lot of different types of criticism or like, you know, that there might be researcher pushbacks and problems like that. The political influence actually might decrease from the pure research side of it, while, you know, the state's inclination to kind of control it or direct it or, um, uh, you know, push its proliferation in different ways might actually change. So effectively, one way to think about it is that as the technologies 
that we use and we are interested in the general purpose technologies get stronger and stronger over a period of time, then the ways in which those actually interact with the superstructure that we have in the form of governments will change and the, they will start taking more and more interest in AI. In the, the, the most curious part of it for me is that if you think about you know, the different sectors that we have talked about, whether it's aerospace or bio or whatever, we are talking about that interest happening over the time span of years or sometimes decades. Whereas if you think about it in terms of AI, we are talking about the time span of this happening within, I don't know, like less than a year. Um, I mean, the White House put out its paper about what AI's framework needs to be like maybe a year and a half ago. This is happening extraordinarily fast. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. Um, why don't you do the, the sort of end, the, the, the small sample critique? Yeah, so I mean, the small sample critique here is, it's very simple. I mean, ultimately, it is trying to answer a question that is really hard to answer by saying like, hey, considering what we have here uh, in terms of sort of AI technologies, what is it going to be like? Or what can we learn from history that we can apply here? So we can look at something like aerospace technology where like Boeing is a national treasure, et cetera, right? And you can look at that and go like, is that similar to how this technology is going to evolve? You can look at something like bio where, you know, you had long periods of not really sort of, you know, uh, completely corralling it off, but at least periods where you had national champions because biotech companies are still seen in some ways as national champions from individual places and driven sort of innovation being driven inside them is seen as uh, critically important. Um, but, you know, the, the the national interest kind of came in at the times of, you know, whether it's recently with the vaccine debacle or even before you can roll it back in the cloning times. And like you can see different ways in which this actually becomes super important, not to mention the actual biological warfare kind of questions where we have had significant deterrence. But, you know, when you think about all of these different things and apply it to something like AI, there are multiple theses, right? One is to say, look, the very fact that this relies on billions of dollars actually being um, uh, needed for you to train these models means that there is a very clear choke point where you can have something akin to similar to rhymes with the sort of chips act or something similar whereby the us china relations can actually take a hit because governments can actually interfere because there is a clear choke point the other alternative is to think of this a little bit as the fact that like in the computing revolution overall where no government, despite it actually being a general purpose technology, has managed to create any significant stranglehold. Even if you think about the great firewall kind of things that exist, those have not particularly you know, stopped the development or the diffusion of technologies between um, different countries. I mean, there is a little bit of Galapagos effect in like parts of Japan and China, etc. But, you know, these are still sort of uh, extant modes where we... Um, interact with the technologies that come from a different, you know, country, domain, whatever, right? I mean, interoperability is big because a lot of the base for this is built on enormous amounts of open source where you genuinely cannot create an entirely domestic uh, stack that goes all the way from, you know, sand, silicon at the bottom, all the way up towards whatever, you know, name it, like an, a consumer application, like the conversation that we are having. So we have this, we have an emerging, we have a, a critical emerging technology, which is, um, uh, you know, going to be under contestation by the, you know, creators of it and the researchers, by the firms and the investors who stand to make, you know, billions of dollars from the commercialization, as well as governments who are worried about, um, you know, safety, as well as um, making sure that, uh, 
the the sort of national security state as well as society at large can sort of reap the benefits of this of this coming innovation. So, um, really interestingly, I you know AI and China um, re- ended up uh, you know potentially being part of the um, uh, what drove the schism between Sam Altman and um, and the board. So Helen Toner, full disclosure, um, you know, person I've met on uh, one or two occasions. He works at CSET, uh, which is a, uh, you know, a think tank uh, I've had a lot of folks on over the podcast over the past um, over the past few years. I consider her a colleague in this, you know, small little world of folks who think seriously about um, about AI in China. There was some reporting about how they have had sort of fundamental disagreements about um uh, you know, about the relationship between AI and China and AI and in the U.S., uh, with Sam Altman saying to the U.S. Senate that a, quote, peril of AI regulation is that, quote, you slow down American industry in such a way that China or somebody else makes faster progress. And Helen Toner, alongside, um, you know, Jeff Ding, who's a longtime uh, China Talk guest, writing a piece in Foreign Affairs entitled The Illusion of China's AI Prowess, Regulating AI Will Not Set America Back in the Technology Race, um, basically making the case against that. So, um, Rohit, I want to sort of start out with some premises that I come to in this discussion about sort of U.S.-China AI development and its broader implications. So first, you know, the U.S. is in a strategic competition with China. Second, um, diffusion and innovation of, uh, you know, core technologies often define great power competition. We'll refer everyone to, um, you know, Paul Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers to get into that. Next, you know, I would personally prefer the U.S. and its allies to be in the camp that has the best technology on the technologies that are most important. And therefore, you know, I want the U.S. to be, quote unquote, ahead when it comes to the both, uh, you know, innovation as well as diffusion of AI. And, you know, the core um, discussion that has been happening online in, you know, effective ultra circles, uh, as well as apparently in the OpenAI boardroom, is this question of, you know, first an analytical one of just what is the gap between uh, American and Chinese artificial intelligence capabilities, as well as like, is it a thing, is it, is the construct of, Let's build up a lead over China so that we can slow down when we think we need to slow down in order to make the world safer AGI. Like the right way to think about the sort of gap between uh, national AI, um, you know, capabilities. Uh, pause there, Rohit, for, um, you know, initial framing thoughts or, or questions you have to the, the, the premise that may well have been at the core of the dispute between um, uh, the OpenAI leadership and its board? There are two kind of er problems that are important to remember when we kind of analyze this, right? Number one is the fact that the current crop of AI research is um, heavily impacted by previous AI speculations around what it might mean for us to create an extraordinarily powerful artificial intelligence. And that debate has been informed by long decade, decade long at this point, discussions online about what this might mean. Uh, speculations, science fiction, you know, uh, logical debates. There's a there's an enormous corpus of work in the previously rationalist and effective altruist circles about how important this particular issue is. As part of that, one part of the argument for why we need to slow down AI, because people are worried about once you actually create it, it might extinguish all of human life, comes from the fact that there is this implicit assumption that there is a race dynamic, 
the race dynamic here basically says like, you know, you want US to develop it or China to develop it and India to develop it or Europe to develop it. And like each one of them will compete with each other. And as a consequence, they will cut corners on safety, which is what we do not want to have happen. So why don't we kind of throw barriers in the middle of that? That is the presumption. Once you have that as the presumption, then you kind of look at what is OpenAI is doing or Anthropic is doing or China is doing and kind of say, oh, okay, you know, are these guys pushing the race forward or backwards? But like all of this, it is important to remember that the race dynamic we are assuming here assumes a particular form of um, analysis and discussion and like fights between between nations, between companies, between usage models. That kind of has yet to be proven out, right? So as a consequence, my my issue with this framing is only insofar as the fact that when you say something like AI regulation is needed, that is kind of very abstract. It doesn't really mean all that much. Sure, let's slow everything down by two years. What happens? I mean, there is no clear analysis or conclusion beyond the fact that that would be good, which is a premise going in, because like in order to for that, in order for us to slow it down, we need more um, time. Is the assumption. So if the conclusion is that we can get more time, you've kind of gone in a little bit in a circle. Assumption number two is that all of these individual parties are not doing enough for safety is one of the conclusions. Um, assumption, sorry. And in order for to assume that, you have to assume a whole lot about what actually goes on inside these companies. And the main argument for that is the things like, you know, they launch GPT-2 or they launch GPT-3 or 3.5 or chat or 4. And Considering the amount of use the universe has gotten out of these things actually being released, and considering the fact that the number of negative incidents from these being released are effectively zero, we should kind of ask ourselves whether this premise of race-based analysis is the first thing is the correct thing in the first place. And when Sam talks to US Senate and talks about, you know, China and China and race dynamics as being core to kind of this debate, it is simultaneously true that this is one of the worries that part of the board members, Helen, et cetera, have in the fact that you, their thesis is you shouldn't actually be uh, going after China in the first place. And B, she wrote publicly while she was a board member at OpenAI that like, hey, Anthropic's decision to not actually publish their chatbot was the right decision. And to me, there is an enormous tension there that like at some point it had to come to four and this is perhaps the worst way it could have done so. Um, but, you know, it's also true that like when you're talking with, you know, governments and you're saying this is a historically important technology that can be compared with, I don't know, like fire and language and, you know, computers, then sh yeah, of course, com like national security becomes one of the components that you need to analyze this through. So it simultaneously makes a lot of sense to me, the, but the premise for having the whole discussion assumes way too much. And I don't think it actually digs down deep enough into like what actually happens with this particular technology in this particular time frame and you know the supply chain for this technology if we cut off what actually happens etc it's hard to define race dynamics right i think you know companies clearly are competing to bring products to market that are you know the latest and greatest and um you know Indeed. win market share and you know create value in the economy um, you know, that maybe was a dynamic that was maybe a list, little less powerful dynamic before ChatGPT launched, but like the whole planet understands this is an enormously valuable thing, both 
you know, firms in the U.S. as well as those in China and everywhere else, everywhere else in, around the world. So, um, you know, there are sort of competitive dynamics. And I think the sort of cat being able to be that cat's not going to be put back in the bag. And, you know, insofar as, um, you know, you are upset with people trying to sort of commercialize AI, like I, Helen's kind of got a point. Like, yeah, like if, if chat GPT was never released, maybe that would have happened a few years later or, or, or something. But, um, you know, set, setting that aside, I think the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the question of whether a, whether sort of slowing down for safety or AI regulation is something that would, you know, set the U S back or forward is like a very is is absolutely a very muddled conversation and maybe let's spend the next um uh, uh you know the next 15 minutes trying to um uh, trying to unpack that a little bit so rohit kind of in the abstract what are the ways in which uh uh US government policy uh just to narrow it for a little bit could accelerate or decelerate the um you know innovation and adoption of artificial intelligence technology chat gpt for one example or claude or poe or any one of these things um if you think about these guys, these ones as technologies where the uh, outcome of having used it and the liability or of having used it to do something lies with the user, like I use it to do something dumb, the liability lies with me, then there is a whole list of ways in which this can be used widely. In fact, that's kind of how it's being used today. Like if I use ChatGPT to pick stocks for me and I lose all my money tomorrow, like I can't go and sue Sam right? Like our, our open AI or whomever. There are discussions around like removing that and putting liability back into the uh, uh, open AI side or the provider side, where basically they say like, look, if you guys can't make it perfectly safe for people to not do really bad things, not necessarily just losing money, but perhaps things like, you know, create a bioweapon at the worst case scenario or like, right, computer viruses that allow me to hack you or something like that. And then how should that liability actually be placed? The more of that liability actually goes towards the uh, companies, the slower it becomes. This is just kind of like factual, right? We have seen this happen, you know, pretty much everywhere. This has been the single dominant debate about social media over the last five, seven years. And in fact, I feel in some ways that it has just been copy pasted now into uh, generated content as opposed to user generated content. The second thing is like, if you kind of uh, double down behind you know, new semiconductor manufacturing, uh, better immigration policies that actually bring people in to actually push these advanced industries forward, clearly going to be accelerationist because all of a sudden, U.S. will have the ability to attract and create talent and plus make sure that a large part of the core, core, core technology, the hardware side, the choke point that we had talked about, um, they would be able to, you know, double down on it and control it and make it actually work much better. Um, going forward, you know, if they suddenly start um, creating um, extremely onerous regulations around every time you actually create a model, um, you need to call it what you will, register it, you know, run safety tests on it of all sorts of different types before you can ever release it to public. You're going to have outcomes from that, just like the fact that a lot of open source technologies suddenly start becoming, if not illegal, at least like gray area, which is a enormous hit, at least insofar as the computing world are concerned. And, you know, you can create a size threshold for some of these things to kind of ameliorate the impact. But it's a little bit like, you know, you know how, you know, um, uh, 
Apple app stores have a size limit below which they actually don't take a cut, but it doesn't really matter because most of the benefit actually comes from the top. That's the positive scenario. The negative scenario is that if you actually do cut out a lot of the guys at the bottom and the technology develops as fast as it wants. Right now, I'm training a whatever 7 billion parameter model, but there is no reason that like I wouldn't be able to train a 20 billion, 100 billion parameter model soon enough as hardware and software actually are getting better. So it's regulations are effectively, you know, which one of these regulations will happen or should happen is a question about what you actually want to have happen in the future. Plus, do you have a vision version of a crystal ball where you can kind of figure out which ones of these you need to stop and which ones of these you need to push forward? And I feel like a lot of the conversations are, you know, a step ab above that, right? I mean, we're talking about things like pausing or not pausing, et cetera, instead of saying, hey, I'm, you know, for U.S. national security interests, what do we actually want? Or like U.S. you know, world interests, we need an extraordinarily large and vibrant and strong industry leadership position for this historically important technology. Great. There's a set of things that we need to do in order to kind of make that happen. Number two, we need a large chunk of this not to be easily exportable externally. And that presumably means it kind of goes a little bit against open source. It kind of goes positive towards slightly more closed source because that's the only way it can actually get easily exported. Number three, we can say something to the order of if you are working in these historically important technologies and if you are, you know, I don't know, a data scientist who's working on this problem inside OpenAI and you want to kind of go off and join Alibaba's division tomorrow, there are going to be questions the same way we have actually done for semiconductor manufacturing. That would be another way to kind of slice it into kind of making what we want to happen. Number four, you can make it usage-based. You can say that, hey, you want to create whatever video, image, LLM, et cetera, based kind of technologies, and you want to deploy it in um, healthcare or finance or uh, construction, aerospace manufacturing, for that matter, you can suddenly say, oh, you know, those things are, it really matters whether you get things right. So therefore, the liability kind of shifts a little bit closer towards you. So there's a bunch of different slices you can do of specific regulations that will either hinder or advance the course of the cause of both like safety as well as highly useful technologies that can be uh, uh, deployed everywhere. And almost none of these actually are, you know, almost all of these at least are orthogonal to the conversation about should we stop for six months or not? Because like that's kind of neither here nor there. That was that was fantastic. Um, I want to take this in a slightly different direction, which is, you know, give a give a little bit of a state of play on you know where where the where the U.S. Uh, models are in relation to the Chinese ones. So over the past few weeks um, here at China Talk, we've been doing a fair amount of research about um, you know just exactly sort of where the um, where the gaps are. I mean, there's been a lot of we've done a lot of coverage about the the the. Chinese, um, you know, determined efforts to create their own semiconductor manufacturing base and importing all of the, um, you know, semicap tools in order to, to, to do that. But one of the sort of key claims that um, this piece by uh, Jeff Jenny and, and Helen Toner are in foreign affairs is, is basically that Chinese LLMs suck and they're going to continue to suck. Um, you know, so, so they, they reference these, these anecdotes about um, sort of Ernie and, um, you know, Jeff and Jeff and Jenny did a, did a, a, substantial paper, which I'll link to in the show notes with GovAI, kind of like looking through all of the different um, main Chinese uh, uh, sort of foundation models, which have been um, released. Um, it, this is up to June of 2023. And their conclusion was that Americans should not be haunted by the specter of an eminent Chinese surge in LLM development. 
Chinese teams are fighting and often failing to keep up with the blistering speed of new research and products emerging everywhere. When it comes to LLMs, China trails years, not months behind its international competitors. Um, so my take is that that is incorrect. Um, uh, you know, over the past few months, um, and we're going to have a big feature about this on China Talk in the next um, uh, uh, few days right after Thanksgiving, you've seen Ernie 4.0, Kimmy, uh, uh, Chat GLM2 Pro, all of which like are basically as good as Claude and maybe not quite at GPT-4 level. Um, but to say that, um, you know, America has like years in which it can sort of pause to like figuring out it's like sort of figuring out everything that's going on just does not strike me as like necessarily reflective of the reality of just how good um, the, the sort of Chinese teams are as well as their, you know, current access to compute. Um, and the sort of coming back to, 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 to the question that you were talking about, Rohit, is like um, China currently, and I, this is a part where I agree with the piece, is, you know, actually under under operating under a really tight regulatory environment. Um, but, you know, despite that, uh, you've seen re releases of models that are, um, you know, broadly competitive with the offerings that, you know, everyone sans open AI uh, has been has been able to, to get to market out in the West. In, in my sense, like I wouldn't really want to like, I don't necessarily I, I agree with you, Rohit, and I don't see a ton of upside in the kind of like pause and figure out what's going on um, narrative when the the dynamic of, you know, chancing it and throttling back to see if, you know, China could, Ganchao could like, you know, uh, you know, catch up to and ultimately overtake China, uh, America and AI is, you know, not something that I'm super excited about. And, um, you know, there is, I think, a broader question, um, which I'd be, you know, really curious to get your perspective on Rohit of, you know, to what extent do you have a sense that that AI is going to be one of these technologies where it is possible to develop a sort of sustainable, you know, long term, quote unquote, advantage on either an innovation or diffusion? Or if this is something that the whole world is just going to be able to get, um, uh, you know, relatively equal uh, access to? You know, we sometimes forget the fact that ChatGPT came out with 3.5 maybe a, a year ago, just about a year ago, actually almost exactly. And GPT-4 came out seven months ago, something like that. Um, this is, these are not long timeframes, right? These are very short timeframes. Um, at least as of the, some of the latest things that I've read, like almost all, like China has, I think the second largest number of different LLMs that it has actually published. Most of them are not very good, but they're also starting sort of with an enormous um, push to make sure that they are in the forefront of this particular technology. Number two, GPT-4, it has by now at least been said in many different ways, is like a collection of a hundred different bag of small tricks rather than one large trick, which is why it has been difficult to replicate exactly the same performance that you want from it. However, for individual tasks, like you know, you want to you want something that is really good at coding or really good at writing fiction, et cetera, et cetera you can already fine-tune existing sort of open-source ones to be much better than GPT-4. And that is true today, right? It's not sort of something mythical. Um, put both of these things together and the question of like, how far is China from actually developing a wonderful LLM of their own? I would say like, they should be able to do it pretty. Not, I don't know if it's easily is the right word, but like it is well within their capability. This is not one where they just genuinely have 
no short of catching up because of a huge amount of underlying fundamental research that they need to do to catch up for productization. These, this is a tinkerer's world, right? Like this is effectively like people are messing around with like all different layers and like they're trying out different attention tries and like they're, every now and then a new paper comes out and you try seven variations of it and see what happens. Like until fairly recently, we didn't even know how exactly like you needed to kind of massage the data or like structure it or sequence it in order to actually make it do better performance at the end of it. And to be fair, we still don't know. We just know it a little bit better than we did three months ago. This is a tinkerer's world. And in a tinkerer's world, uh, large resources, plus a lot of people who are actually interested in figuring it out will figure it out. Which also comes down to your second question about, can you ever build an enduring edge? Um, I'm unsure unless you have to run really fast to kind of keep up with the edge. Now, I can think of a few ways that you might be able to do that. To me, it it's not going to remain realistically true of pure LLM, but like if you highly verticalize it or put it to an industry or put it to a use case and spend an enormous amount of effort in trying to make sure that it functions within that domain because of better data, better training, and a whole host of different sort of tool chain that you have to build around it, then you might actually start having enduring advantage. But that's from a company perspective, not from a national perspective, right? To me, it's more likely that from a national perspective, it might remain like the cell phone industry where, you know, Apple had a commanding lead in terms of performance for a long period of time. Android caught up over sort of time uh, with its performance. And, you know, China, like, you know, if you look at OnePlus or Huawei, those phones are phenomenal, right? I mean, they're, they're absolutely fantastic because they figured out the hundred small tricks that were required in order to make those phones um, incredibly usable. So I'm fairly suspicious that like, A, they are far behind and they'll remain far behind for years. I mean, maybe, who knows, but I find that unlikely because anything in computation world essentially is either um, de facto or de jure open source, which effectively means that you can actually build on top of what has come before. And you have a lead insofar as you have the best people and the best intentions in order to create a usable product that takes over the world. But by no means does that remain. That that yeah. lead is not unassailable, right? It has not been unassailable for any computing product ever, much less any hardware product. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the two people, the two things that I think people hold their hat on potentially are what you said, Rohit, is this idea that you know, it, it, it all come down to sort of like applications and the hard stuff to take this technology and put it into, you know, your factory or your, you know, military industrial base or, uh, you know, your school system or, or whatever it is. Um, and the other thing, which I, which is something that um, the, the foreign affairs piece alludes to um, is this idea that, you know, having access to the latest and greatest compute, which is something that the U.S. is slowly but surely uh, restricting China to is something that can be an enduring advantage. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. That's the case first because um, it's, it's still very much an open question whether, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now, China will basically just be able to um, make roughly uh, competitive chips to what um, you see in the rest of the world, as well as, you know, there is a, a sort of arc in which this technology could go where having, um, you know, having the most exquisite um, compute isn't necessarily what um, uh, uh, you know what what leads you to the technological frontier. You know we've had we've had eras of, of of AI which have been dominated by this sort of scaling laws, as well as eras of AI in which this you know you haven't necessarily needed um, uh, 
you know, needed the biggest and baddest computers to, um, uh, uh, to get yourself, um, get yourself to the edge or, you know, folks can always steal the weights. So, um, uh, uh, you know, that as a, uh, that as a sort of, as something that you would want to hold your hat on to, uh, be kind of comfortable enough in America's enduring advantage to, uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, slow down, uh, is just not where my head is at, uh, personally. Yeah. Can I just start like, you know, in some ways, when you talk about large numbers, everything becomes difficult to compare. But one way to think about it is that the amount of money that is required to make this happen is not that large. Uh, it's it's weird, right? Because everyone talks about, oh, training GPT-4 is difficult. But I think it's like, you know, maybe 100 million. If, let's assume it's 10 times that. Let's assume it's a billion. How many companies can you think of today who are able to spend a billion dollars in order to build basically something that will, I don't know, step change their entire business. The, yeah. Like that is an enormous number of companies, like who can do that. Now, on top of it, add nations. Like this, this is not an insurmountable funding. We did trillions for, you know, o- over over the last few years in order to support people. Do you re- like if a nation state wants to actually invest in this space, resources in terms of money is not going to be the bottleneck. Resources in terms of people is currently a bottleneck. I don't know if it'll remain a bottleneck, but I find it difficult to look at this and kind of go like, oh, you can invest, I don't know, like $200 billion into chips manufacturing, but we can't invest a billion, 10 billion into actually creating, you know, something that actually changes the course of your national pride, history, call it what you will. I mean, this feels like one of those things where, in some ways, if I am a smaller country sitting around the world, this is an easier way for me to level the playing field. Like if I am, I don't know, Singapore or Denmark or uh, Switzerland, it feels much more interesting for me to invest this amount of money in order to try and get something out because these are very small from a governmental point of view. Um, uh, I had a I had a back and forth with Leonard Heim of GovAI on a podcast we did um, for compute governance. Yeah, we called it the geopolitics of compute 101, uh, where Chris Miller and I, we were talking about sort of the scaling laws. And and Leonard was like, maybe one day it'll cost like a billion or even five billion dollars to train your last model. And Chris and I, you know, who spent a lot more time thinking about you know industrial bases than, than he has, perhaps were just kind of shrugged at that number being like, oh, man, that's like, you know, that's like one 20th of like Intel's um, corporate governance, like to say nothing of, yeah. you know, what the, what the U S spent as a percentage of GDP on, on, you know, the, the, the Manhattan project or whatever. So of the I mean, other these are dynamic, absurdly small numbers, yeah, absurdly small numbers. And, and the sort of other dynamic that I think will start to reach, and this is something that um, Tyler Cowan, thank you, uh, taught me over the course of uh, reading his blog over the years is like, once stuff gets too expensive, like if the scaling laws lead to you having to build a $10 trillion model or something to like get to the next phase. Like that is when the innovation kicks in. Um, and, uh, so well, before we get to that point, there will be more attention and energy and money developed towards sort of new algorithmic structures and breakthroughs and, and new, uh, sort of innovations on chip design and what have you to bring that number back down to be able to make you make progress at a, 
at a sort of scale and in a sort of new technology paradigm and one that is, um, you know, one that is accessible to, uh, uh, to, 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 to more players who want to compete on the frontier. So um, I don't necessarily, I agree with you, Rohit. I don't think sort of ex extrapolating that number out to like, oh, like at some point we'll get to like a hundred trillion dollar um, uh, model and like no one will be able to train that except for the U.S. or something. It doesn't, doesn't strike me as like a necessarily super realistic um, uh, a technological pathway for this to develop on. It's also surprisingly not useful for you to make the decisions that need to be made. <clears throat> because when you... You know, it's like the, I keep thinking of the Keynes quote, you know, the longer sort of we're all dead. Like, this is one of those cases where if you extrapolate too many steps beyond where we are, you can't make a sensible analysis decision, anything about like what you ought to do tomorrow or like day after or next year, right? I mean, they, like you do, like your sort of $100 trillion example is a perfect one. Like what we have is what we have today. We have a sense of what's coming tomorrow and we can kind of do it iteratively and step by step, which we absolutely should do. And when we think about things like, you know, safety, safety is important. Safety is important in every software, right? I mean, we've put, you know, um, the, the last weekend I was at sort of in Houston to go visit NASA, the, 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 the museums. And I'm like, we put people on the moon using analog computers. Like, you know, these problems are everywhere. We can, like, we are able to solve um, extraordinarily complicated problems and take certain types of risks that allow us to demonstrate and create sort of incredible advantages in the future. So when you think about something like, hey, is this safe to release? Sure, you need to do QA, you need to do testing, you need to make sure that the people who use it are able to use it in order to do the things that they want. There's a whole list of things that you need to do, which to me look a lot more like a different version of like a data science pipeline or like a computer science sort of coding pipeline that have to be done. When you extrapolate away from that and try to create sort of theories that stand on the top of like assumptions about these things, like the more steps away from the facts you are, the faster it is for you, to, like it, that deck of cards collapses pretty quickly. So, you know, we're talking about sort of open AI, right? I mean, ultimately, they had to take the path that they had to take in order to get the $10, $12 billion in order for Microsoft to invest in them and get their profit shares, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, they had to commercialize part of the technology. But the flip side of it is like, isn't it amazing that they commercialize part of the technology? Like, I mean, I remember how long it took me to get my parents to start using Google. They started using ChatGPT within like, I don't know, under like a couple of weeks. It's normal for them at this moment. And this is not like a small thing. I mean, yes, it hallucinates and yes, it's not perfect. And yes, it gets things wrong all the time. But it is, I mean, I did this analysis recently. This is, it's the single most used website now on my laptop sort of by far. I downloaded my history and finally, and I've got ChatGPT to analyze it and give me the results in a table. Like it is... <laughs> This is phenomenal. Like I, we should, we should. When you look at it and you're like you're worried about safety, like so am I. We are all worried about safety all the time. There are people who still don't like flying on planes, but we take that into account and we try and do the work in order to make sure that it's safe when it comes out. But what we can't do is to create impossible kind of goals of saying like, hey, you need to actually be able to give perfectly accurate, excellent information to the questions that are asked of you, except. If the people who are asking you those questions want to use those answers for nefarious purposes, because the only way to solve that, guess what, is to actually give it sentience, even if we even if we knew how to do that, which we don't. That seems like a paradoxical answer to a question that you feel ought to be answered before we actually build it. So, so Rohit, like 
what sort of architecture of open AI do you think would have made for like long-term, uh, you know, a more uh, sort of faster innovating and more productive uh, organization, the one in which open AI is independent or the one in which they all become, you know, a sort of like LinkedIn style vertical of Microsoft. I think independent would have been better for them to do things faster, iterate as well as try stuff. Once you become a subsidiary of Microsoft, you will have more resources and you will be able to accelerate the thing that things that you're already doing much faster. But I am still doubtful of the fact that that would have resulted in as much um, externally visible progress of the sort that we got so far. Um, and I say this with the full knowledge that Microsoft might still be seen as more accelerationist, um, et cetera. It's true, but ultimately it's a corporation, right? And the corporation that makes hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue by actually selling things to other people has a different point of view to a mission-focused 700-person startup who is trying to look at this and go like, go like, you know, how do we, how do we create God effectively? That is, that is a different sort of scale. In a weird way, both parties are much better when they're separate because Microsoft already has a call option on everything that OpenAI develops for at least a foreseeable future and 75% of the profits, if I remember. Yeah. So uh, they're fine. Uh, yeah, uh, up money. to a trillion dollars. You know, once we get past that, then we'll have, a, we'll yeah, have another I mean, conversation. Like, <laughs> I mean, even it's actually like up to a trillion is what they're allowed to get in terms of profit share, but they have free use of the technology along with that. Which is, I mean, it's an it's an incredibly good deal for Microsoft. So they don't even have to pay these people or like talk about safety or whatever. Like that's why they felt happy to develop Sydney, right, and put it out into the world. Because if you think about it, every single development that um, OpenAI has done, Microsoft has probably lapped them by about a week. Whether it's in putting out a chatbot or GPT four coming into uh, Chat GPT versus sort of the other one, like. Uh, uh, or automatic searching online, like Microsoft has this already. So I would say like them being independent is probably the best solution for everyone outside, independent in double quotes, I presume. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's like the, you know, talk about Shakespeare, it's like that quote, right? Uh, uh, appetite is a universal wolf. I think it's from Macbeth. I think Microsoft has insatiable appetite for uh, conquering the world. And at some point having someone with a mission focus who stands separately and is able to create is perhaps the better solution for all of us. So this was a hell of a week. I think um, a lot of people, myself included, got a little um, sort of carried away with the Shakespearean drama uh, of uh, what happened. But, you know, it's almost certain that the dispute that, that the board had with the firm are around issues that are really important and deserve a national conversation and some real thinking through because I think the the sort of consequences of how of how these decisions get played out um, are going to be really important um, uh, U.S. national interest and you know humanity more broadly. So uh, you know, insofar as uh, we tried to take uh, over the past hour, take this um, uh, take this story as a as a sort of hook and an excuse to um, you know, explore some of these bigger questions about technological technological development, national competitiveness, and regulation. I hope you found this useful, audience. Um, thanks so much for um, being with us this year, and have a happy Thanksgiving for everyone in the U.S. And um, 
Lastly, Rohit, thank you so much for being a part of China. My absolute pleasure. This was uh, wonderful.
One of these old days, yeah. One of these old days. 